0: I'm glad you're here a We are, have started a journey from the book of John. Um, just as a quick little introduction, I love to teach scripture this way. We tend to do this. We take books and pieces of text and just sort of really explore them. And We had finished up two and a half years from every verse of the book of Acts, and we were looking for something else to do. And So we dove into John eight weeks ago, and we are in the middle of the beginning of that journey. So we have uh, started it. And I thought we were moving pretty quickly, but we're going to slow down here and hit the brakes because I tried to get through this entire text, 21 verses, and I only made it through a few. So I think this thing is going to stretch out a little bit for us because as I begin to look at the text we're going to explore this morning, we're talking about a Pharisee named Nicodemus. There's just so much here that I want to spend some time on. And so this is what tends to happen. As I begin to preach through texts and look at these verses, I realize what God is doing in me. And then I just show up on Sunday and I tell you. And so. All of my preaching is almost always a result of what God is doing and he's showing and me, stirring in me that he needs me to adjust or fix or he's opening my eyes to. And you. you are the recipients of me often just preaching to myself. And so that's essentially what's happening this morning. We are in the Gospel of John chapter 3. We spent eight weeks looking at Jesus essentially, or John, the Gospel writer, essentially establishing the deity of Christ. He's establishing Jesus, Jesus' deity through testimony, through miraculous signs, through, through really powerful ways. And the whole front part of the book of John is really designed to demonstrate the deity of Christ. And so what we're going to see over the next three chapters is Jesus encountering the people that have issues, that have questions, that have struggles. And he's going to demonstrate his deity by speaking into and by encountering these people in the middle of their struggles, and their hurts, and their fears, and their failures. And he's going to show us just what kind of God he truly is. And this section begins with an encounter that most of us are familiar with, an encounter with a Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus. And so hopefully you're familiar with the story, if you've been to church all, you've heard it, and we're going to kind of walk through it a little bit this morning, and I'll tell you where I find myself in the middle of it, and maybe somewhere along the way you'll find yourself in there too. So if you've got your Bible, I want you to turn to John chapter 3. Um, now Brandon last week wrapped up. With a section in chapter 2 where Jesus essentially says that he knows the hearts of all men, right? And he knows what is in the heart of men. And Jesus is essentially saying, I'm not giving myself over to humanity because I know the things that are in people and I know what beats inside of them. And we are going to see that come to fruition today and next week and the week after and the week after that as Jesus shows us just how well... He knows our hearts, how sinful and broken and the issues that we have and the struggles that we have, how well he knows them, and just how much he loves us anyway. So as we prepare to open God's word, let's go before him and pray this morning. Lord, we thank you that you are a God of incredible grace. We thank you, Lord, that you know our hearts and you love us anyway. Lord, as we're going to see with Nicodemus, you know him. You know him better than he knows himself, and you love him. And God, that you know me and you know better than I know—I even know myself. And God, yet you love me. And each one of us sitting in this room, God, is a recipient of that same truth. That God, you know us. You know the baggage that we brought in you. God, you know the fears and the failures that we have. You know the ways that we have questioned you. The rocks that we have thrown at you. The things that we have hidden from you. God, you know all of it. You know every breath that we breathe. You know every thought that we have before we have it. And God, you know the hearts of all men. You know what is in us, and you love us in that. And so, Lord, this morning, I pray that as we open your word, you would speak directly to us through a familiar story, through a story that most of us are going to know its characters or at least know what they look like. And, and God, I pray that you would speak fresh to us. Take a moment in your own heart as you sit here this morning and just ask the Lord to teach you. It can be that simple. Just, just ask him to teach your heart. And I know that may be crazy for some of you that are new, but we do this each week. And we, we just ask the Lord to teach us. take a moment and pray for someone beside you, um, in front of you, behind you. Good we do this each week. We want to be in the habit of praying for other people. This whole thing on Sunday morning is not about you. We want to be at church. We want to see God in each other. And so just pray for that person. Pray that whatever they're walking with, oh Lord, we just need them mortal of it. Just pray for them. turn our entire morning over you. Every word of scripture is unknowable without you revealing it to us. And so we ask that your Holy Spirit would reveal the truth to us, God. We don't take this time lightly. We know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you, and so we hang on every breath of it. And so God, we pray that you would teach our hearts through your Holy Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. So, we're into chapter 3. Jesus has done the miraculous of turning water into wine. Brandon talked last week about him clearing the temple. All of these things are Jesus' demonstration of his deity kind of thrusting himself over Jewish customs. And now he's going to come into contact with the epitome of Jewish leadership. And he's going to begin expressing his deity through through his relationships with people. We're going to see this unfold over the next few weeks and actually the next few chapters, however long that takes us. So uh, this is uh, John chapter 3, and we'll go down through verse nine this morning. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. And he came to Jesus at night, and he said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one can perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God was not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked so my plan was to go ahead and get through 21 and explore this whole story, but but there's just too much incredible, too much incredible things, too many incredible things that are happening in this encounter that I, I can't walk past. And so I'm going to divide it into two sections, which will probably turn into three. But I'm going to divide it into two. All right. And the first one we're going to look at this encounter. We're going to unpack a little bit, and then next week we're going to unpack the theological impact in Jesus' answer and his response. To Nicodemus. But I want to look at it a little bit on the surface today at this encounter with Nicodemus and Jesus. And so, as the text opens, we know two things about this guy, Nicodemus. We know that he is a Pharisee, and we know that he is part of the Jewish ruling council. Right now, this is a review for any of you that have gone with acts to us or done these other things. You know, that there are five kind of major political parties at that time in the life of Israel. There were the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Scribes and the Essenes and the Zealots. And they all had different belief systems, okay? And not to get into all those, but the two major ruling parties were the Sadducees and the Pharisees, and they were incredibly different. The Sadducees were aristocrats, they were born in the right families, they were pretty wealthy. They made up the majority of the seats on the Jewish ruling council, which is called the Sanhedrin, 70 or 71, depending on who you read, and who you uh, kind of follow. But there were about 70 or 71 seats, and the Sadducees made up the majority of those, and they held the position of high priest and chief priest. The Pharisees were the keeper of the law. They were more of a working class, but they felt like they were a religious elite. They had devoted themselves to the study and the keeping of Scripture. They were in charge of keeping what they believed to be equally as important as Scripture, this section of text called the oral tradition, things that had been written down about Scripture. So. Right. What does it mean to keep a Sabbath? Well, the Pharisees had to find that out. You can do this, you can do that, but you can't do this, you can't do that. They wrote that down and they kept it, and they were the self-proclaimed kind of keepers of the law. And they wore the religiosity on their robes, literally. They would walk down the streets, they were keepers of this law, you could see it. They would pray on the street corners, it was very visible. The Pharisees are very famous because Jesus oftentimes found himself in quite a debate with the Pharisees over all kinds of legalistic stuff. Well, the Sadducees and the Pharisees made up the ruling council called the Sanhedrin, right? Now we know that Nicodemus was a Pharisee, but we also know that Nicodemus was part of the Jewish ruling council. Now not all Pharisees were part of that council. You had to be elected to be in there. There's only 70 of them. The majority of the seats were Sadducees, okay, and the rest were Pharisees. And there were a lot more Pharisees than there were seats on the the ruling council in Sanhedrin. It's kind of like being a sinner today in the uh, United States, right? There's not as many seats, and they were held for, you know, that special political kind of office. uh, They made decisions, both religious and other, for all of Israel. And so Nicodemus, what we know is that he is a Pharisee, so he is a religious leader, he is a scholar of some kind Because next week we'll see Jesus going to address him As you are Israel's scholar Or you are Israel's teacher He's a very educated person The Pharisees always were They usually started at about 13 Going off to essentially his college um, We know this from all of our studies About Paul himself Who studied under uh, the greatest um, Pharisaical minds And himself was a Pharisee And so we know that Nicodemus Is a Pharisee He's a member of the Jewish ruling council we also know that he came to Jesus at night, right? A lot of speculation has been made about why uh, Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. But at the end of the day, it's all speculation. No one really knows. I've heard it said and heard it written that he came at night because he didn't want people to see him talking to Jesus. Or I also heard it written. somebody wrote it one time that said, Jesus was such a busy guy during the day that if you didn't catch him at, at night, it would be interrupted. And I mean, it's all just people making stuff up at that point in time. Because we have no idea. Maybe maybe Nicodemus had a haircut Not his beard, but his hair or something. I don't know. But anyway, he comes at night. It doesn't really matter. And he shows up to Jesus at night, and he makes a statement to Jesus. Now, most of us who read this text think that, that Nicodemus comes with a question. But really, Nicodemus comes with a statement. He says this. Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you were doing if God was not with him. So, Nicodemus shows up at night... Wherever Jesus is, maybe he's at a house, maybe he's standing on the street corner. And Nicodemus has a statement. Right? He has a statement. He says, Rabbi, or teacher, we, using this plural thing here saying, most likely a few of us on this ruling council are somewhat in agreement that you are a special teacher. That you are a teacher from God. Because no one could do the miraculous things that you do if God weren't with him." Essentially what Nicodemus is saying is, Jesus, rabbi, teacher, you're like one of us, right? We just want you to know that. Like, we have a lot in common, right? The things that you do are from God, and, and the, the Pharisees believed that they had not sinned, that they had perfectly kept the law, that God's presence and God's blessing was on them. And essentially Nicodemus makes a statement to Jesus where he says, I'm going to call you rabbi, which is what I am too, because God's presence is with you, because no one could do what you do if it wasn't, right? Which seems like an object. He said, you said, know, do I think that, that Nicodemus came to Jesus with a question, right? Like, how do you have, have eternal life like the rich young ruler? Nicodemus doesn't have a question. He just makes a statement. And Jesus replies in a really weird way, right? Because he seems to completely ignore what Nicodemus just said. And he says this, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again, which has nothing to do with what Nicodemus just said. Nicodemus said, hey, Jesus, teacher, rabbi, you're one of us. Like, you do things that God enables you to do. And Jesus says, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. And the Greek actually translates as, as that or as born from above. So, no one can see God's kingdom unless he is born again or born from above. i will talk more about that in a moment. And Nicodemus, of course, responds in this really kind of demeaning, weird way where he says, how can someone be born when they're old? What, a crawl back into their mother's womb? Now, I've actually heard messages preached that, that sort of focus on how dense Nicodemus must have been. Nicodemus isn't dumb. He's not dense. He's not even really asking a question. He's actually demonstrating his own sort of scholastic acumen by asking her. Kind of talking down to Jesus in a really sarcastic, rhetorical, non question question. Because everybody knows the answers to those questions. Born again, born from above, how can someone be born when they're old? Answer, you can't. Right? Surely you can't enter a second time into your mother's womb. That's not even a question, it's a statement. With an exclamation point, which actually wasn't probably there. But it says, you can't crawl back into your mother's womb. I mean, it actually is, is a pretty arrogant and pretty demeaning statement to look at Jesus, who, just, who you just said was a teacher from God, right? And he says, you've got to be born again. And Nicodemus says, do you crawl back into your mother?" I mean, that's really the spirit in which he's asking this question. To which, of course, Jesus responds the way Jesus always responds. He doesn't demean or ridicule or kind of condemn Nicodemus. He just responds in truth. He says this. I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. So Jesus responds in sort of a perplexing way. He says, uh, no one can be born again unless he is born of water and spirit. There has been volumes written about what Jesus meant when he says water and and spirit, right? Was he talking about baptism? Was he talking about John's baptism? Of course, he couldn't have expected Nicodemus to understand baptism, and Jesus himself had yet to even be crucified. There's just been a lot there. But most likely, what most kind of reformed evangelical scholars fall back on is this picture that comes out of the Old Testament. The prophets proclaim that you really needed two things as God's people you needed to be purified. And you need to be regenerated or made new by God's Spirit. That's that is what was required. That you had to be purified and that you had to be resurrected or regenerated or made new by God's Spirit. Now I I kind of picked Ezekiel out of one of many to just kind of demonstrate this. This is what Ezekiel says in thirty six. He says, "I will sprinkle." This is God talking. "I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be made clean. I will cleanse you from your impurities, from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove you from your old heart of stone." And give you a new heart, and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and keep my laws. You will live in the land of your forefathers. I will save you from your uncleanliness, and I will be your God. The, the prophets pointed to this idea of purity, right? This idea of, of being cleansed before we are made new in who God is. It actually falls in line with John the Baptist's. Uh, baptism. Remember, we talked about this weeks ago. That John was baptizing not for anything except repentance, confession, repentance to prepare yourself for the coming kingdom of God. The Messiah, whose sandals he was not worthy to even untie, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance and confession. Right, it goes hand in hand with the coming Messiah that we have to be purified. And then regenerated or made new And what, what Jesus is getting to With Nicodemus is Being born again means that we have to be Purified and made new By God and he adds to do that by saying This flesh gives birth To flesh but spirit Gives birth to spirit Essentially saying that your fleshly birth You know what that gets you? It gets you A body and it gets you Flesh and bone but it doesn't get you Anything spiritual Only God's spirit can move to grant something spiritual. In other words, just because you were born Jewish does not mean you are entering the kingdom of heaven. And just because you or I, just because we may have been born into a Christian family, or you went to a Christian school, or you were baptized at one at a Methodist church, or you were baptized at eights, does not mean anything, right? Because flesh gives birth to flesh that if our hearts are purified and remade by the Holy Spirit of God, there is no way we can enter the kingdom of God. Which is what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, because Nicodemus believed his birthright, the way that he was set up, the actual blood that flowed through his veins, right, was his ticket to enter God's kingdom. And what Jesus is saying to Nicodemus as he's approaching this much bigger issue is that You can't enter the kingdom of God unless you've been purified and made new by the Holy Spirit of God, right? Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. He goes on to say this, you shouldn't be surprised that I say this, Nicodemus, right? You shouldn't be surprised that I say you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear it sound, but you cannot tell where it's going, where it came from. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Really what Jesus is doing is he's making a play on words here. The Greek word for wind and breath and spirit is all the same word. It's the word num. Actually, the Hebrew word, interestingly enough, for the same thing, wind, breath, and spirit, is the word rock. It actually means the exact same thing in the Hebrew as it does in the Greek, which is not always the case at all, actually. But those words mean spirit, wind, like the physical wind, and breath. And they're oftentimes used in Scripture, especially in creation, where God blows His literal rock into humanity. That we are exhibiting the breath of God. In Acts chapter 2, when Pentecost happens, and the wind blows through the room. You remember that from years ago when we studied it? That is the very pneuma, the breath, the wind of God. Right? It's the same word. And Jesus is making a play on words. Essentially, He's saying the pneuma is like the pneuma. So the wind that you can't see, that blow whichever way it will, you know it's there because you see its results or its consequences or it's the manifestation of its power. The wind, the pneuma, is like the pneuma of God, right? You don't necessarily know its source or when it's coming, but you see the manifestation of its power that only God's Spirit can give birth to the things of God's Spirit. And he's talking very directly to Nicodemus, who essentially believed that he himself was entitled to God's kingdom. And Jesus simply looks at him and says, you're not, right? The people that are born again, the born of the, the pneuma, the breath, the rock of God, right? They've been purified and they have been made new by God. Not by their actions or their activities or the things that they do. They have been born again, right? This is going to become a theme of John's gospel as he talks about what it takes to surrender our hearts he may do in Christ. Well, this blows Nicodemus' mind, right? And so what we're going to see is Nicodemus in verse 9 says, what? How can this possibly be? And then Jesus is going to explain some pretty deep theology in a really incredible way. We're going to look at that that next week. But what I want to explore a little bit, just for a few minutes, is, is this encounter. There's so much deep stuff there, but I just want to look and brush the dust off the encounter because the encounter... Is really incredible, all right? Because here you have Nicodemus who shows up with all of his issues. Now we don't really know what they are, right? Nicodemus doesn't come out and actually say anything. We don't know why Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. We have no idea. I heard an entire sermon one time. I told a friend that I heard an entire sermon one time preached on how Nicodemus was ashamed, and so he came to Jesus at night because he was ashamed of Jesus. And how you and I live as ashamed people and only want to approach Jesus at night. I thought, that's great. It's just not biblical, right? Which is unfortunate. Because it has nothing, Scripture says nothing about that. We don't know if Nicodemus was ashamed. I mean, maybe Nicodemus was busy. We don't have any idea. But we're often quick to ridicule Nicodemus for showing up at night. And here's my thing. I don't think we should be so quick to jump on the, we hate Nicodemus bandwagon. I mean, he, after all, is the only one that shows up to Jesus at all. I
1: mean, where are the rest
0: of these guys, right? The fact that Nicodemus has something stirring in him, or he's the spokesperson for a group of people, says something about Nicodemus, that he has something in here that he needs to share with Jesus, or address to Jesus, and he addresses it in the form of a statement. Right? He actually is covering up something else, and Jesus knows exactly what it is. So Nicodemus shows up with all of his issues, whatever they are, veiled in whatever attempt they need to be veiled in, but he veils them in his statement. Teacher, man, you're great. You come from God. You're like us. That's what Nicodemus says. But something bigger is going on in Nicodemus' heart, and Jesus knows it. Why? Because Jesus knows Nicodemus. Right? Brandon left us there last week. Jesus knows the heart of all men, and he knows what's in their hearts. Jesus knows Nicodemus the same way that a few weeks ago he knew Nathaniel. You remember Nathaniel comes up and and, and Jesus says, There's perfect Israelite. Nathaniel goes, How do you know me? He goes, I knew you before you even came over. You were sitting under the fig tree. He knew Nathaniel. We're going to see in a couple weeks that he knows the woman at the well. Before she even utters a statement about her past, he is going to tell her everything about her. That Jesus knows hearts and he knew Nicodemus. And he knew Nicodemus' bigger issues. And so Nicodemus throws up this sort of veiled attempt to mask whatever it is with, Hey, Jesus, you're great, man. You're from God, and we're just we're really glad you're here, and, you know, we're all rabbis. But there's something so much bigger at play, and Jesus speaks directly into it, and he says to Nicodemus, Unless you were in the kingdom of heaven, came in the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of heaven, unless you're born again or born from above. Jesus is speaking directly into something that is stirring and moving, in Nicodemus's heart. He knew his bigger issue. I think we forget this about God. That God knows us. I mean, really, truly knows, knows me. Knows what I'm thinking. Knows what I'm feeling. Knows what I'm afraid of. And we do the same thing, right? We bring these veiled attempts before God in our prayers and we say, God, you are, you are great and you are good and you are all these things. But in my heart I'm saying, why have you done this? Or where are you? Or in my heart I'm going, are you even real? And we have all these things that echo through us, And we cover them with these availed attempts to come before God with something that we think he wants to hear. Which is, God, I've been trying. Or God, you know, I've been busy. Or God, I'm doing my best. Or God, you're really great. But in our hearts, we're questioning his goodness, his faithfulness, his provision, his move, who he is. God knows all of those things. And I find myself kind of wrapped up in this place oftentimes, making excuses before God for my own fears and failures and shortcomings. Nicodemus shows up in all of his issues. They're veiled, like me, they're veiled. And Jesus sees right through them. And he speaks directly to the heart. And Jesus sees through your stuff. He just does. He just knows you. He sees through whatever sort of show you're putting on for the world, right? Whatever sort of wall and protection, the little hedge you've built with its pretty pictures about your life and marriage and stuff and things, Jesus sees through them all. And he oftentimes speaks directly into that place. So, how does Nicodemus respond when Jesus speaks directly into it, which is really awesome? Right? Nicodemus responds with selfish arrogance, which is me. So here's the deal. I think mean, it's a little bit harsh. All right, maybe, maybe it's a little bit much, but that's what I see. Jesus says, Nicodemus comes with his issues, his statement about how great Jesus is, and he's a good teacher, and he's from God. And then Jesus speaks into the heart of the matter, saying, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven unless you're born of God, born above, born again. And how does Nicodemus respond? He responds by saying, are you in it? Which is essentially what's wrapped up in his words. What, are you born when you're old? Can you see a grown man crawling into his mother's womb? No, Jesus. Which is what he's doing. He's exercising. He knows better. I hear what you're saying, but I know better. I'm smarter than that. No one's born again. I've spent my life studying things. I know that's not how anatomy works. So what are you saying? Old people, they get born a second time? That's dumb. It's never happened. And no one's crawling back into their mother's womb. I mean, that is what Nicodemus is saying to Jesus. He's essentially saying, I know better. And in that moment, as I was reading this text, I realized I am Nicodemus. I often tell God that I know better. God, I am on board with your plan as long as I'm on board with mine. God often speaks into my heart. He often shares me. He often leads me. And I often demonstrate to Him through my actions that I know better. I hear you, but Lord, what if we did this? Or what if I just tried one more time on my own? Or what? I'm just going to do this because surely you don't mean that. Because I don't want to let go of, or I don't want to trust, or I don't want to put myself completely into his hands. Why? Because I know better. I am Nicodemus. We wear our religious robes, we say all the right things, we show up in all the right places, and then the God that we proclaim is a really great teacher, when he teaches, we call him an idiot. Now, of course, none of us are that rash. We'd never say that, because we don't feel that, but our words betray our hearts. tell God how great he is and how much I love him and how much I trust him. When he tells me, great, trust me, I say, I'm good. (laughs) I was just sort of, I thought he wanted to hear that. But I don't know how to do that. So I'm just going to stick with what I know, which is, that's impossible. That's what Nicodemus is saying. He basically says, Jesus, you're the best teacher. You're from God. And Jesus says something really amazing, and Nicodemus says, but you don't know what you're talking about which is essentially what we do to God every single time we lay our life before him and he calls us into something and we don't go. I hear you, I love you, but I don't trust you. I trust me. I feel safer here. And we respond, right, to Jesus knowing our deeper heart with selfish errors. But when you realize that, and it's a world changer. Because as I was reading this, I found myself so much in this text and so much wanted to look at Nicodemus and just go, dude, what's wrong with you? And then I find myself going, what's wrong with me? Hmm. So, of course, how does Jesus respond? So Nicodemus shows him the issues. Jesus knows his heart. Nicodemus responds the way he does How does Jesus respond? Well, Jesus responds the way he always does, with truth and love. He doesn't demean or ridicule Nicodemus, right? He goes on just to say, I'm going to tell you the truth. Right? Let me tell you the truth. And he explains how these things work. And in a moment, next week you'll see, he's going to explain just how much he loves humanity. John 3, 16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, whoever believes in him, he's going to explain in deep truth his incredible, incredible redeeming love for humanity and the direct face of Nicodemus's selfish arrogance. Jesus is going to say, but I love you. You know what I find really amazing? Is that something happens in the news. We don't see it here. We actually don't see it again until John chapter 19. So John chapter 19 rolls around. Right? The very end of the book. Jesus has been betrayed. There's will pull-out section uh, <laughs> Jesus has been betrayed. He has been handed over. He has been crucified. He has been killed. And he is dead. And this is what happens in John chapter 19. Later that day, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate, So he goes directly to Pontius Pilate. And he asks him for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, because he feared the Jews, with Pilate's permission, he came and took the body. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds worth. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with spices and strips of linen, was with accordance with Jewish burial customs. And the place, in the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. In the garden, there was a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. And Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and the tomb was nearby. They laid Jesus there. So you know where Nicodemus shows back up? He shows back up after the death and resurrection, oh, actually before the resurrection, after the death and crucifixion of Jesus. He shows up with this other guy named Joseph of Arimathea, who the other gospel tells us that that tomb actually belonged to him, the wealthy guy. He was a follower of Christ, but he was afraid of the Jewish leaders. And he shows up to Pontius Pilate and asks for Jesus' body, but he's not alone. He shows up with Nicodemus, the Jewish leader. And Nicodemus isn't accompanying Joseph because he wants to make sure that nothing happens. Nicodemus is accompanying Joseph with stuff. 75 pounds of aloe and spices and myrrh and stuff to Ceremonially wrap the body of Jesus. You know what this is? It's an act of love. This is what you did for people you love. It's what a family would do for someone they lost. But if you lost a child or a parent, the care that it took to wrap that body, to do all the custom ceremonial things that had to happen to make that right, was done by people that loved that person. It wasn't done by strangers. And it sure wasn't done by an angry mom that wanted them dead. So where does Nicodemus show back up? He shows back up in this incredible act of love. And you know what I like to think, and I don't know, but I like to think that something happened in Nicodemus's heart. That somewhere along the way, God redeemed that fleshly heart with the new man of God, right? With the Spirit of God. And whatever happened to Nicodemus that night, as he stood there with Jesus, and Jesus explained in truth and love, and spoke directly into his selfish arrogance, and said, "But I still love you, and came for you." Changed him. And we see Nicodemus in the end of Jesus' life in this incredible act of love, wrapping the body of Jesus with another disciple who was scared to death of the very guy that was standing next to him. And together, they took care of the body of Jesus. You know what I find really profound in all that is that Jesus didn't come for people like Nicodemus. He came for Nicodemus. And Jesus didn't come and give his life for someone like you. He literally gave his life for you. He came for you. And you and I, we're just like Nicodemus. We say we love the Lord. He speaks into our deeper issues. And we tell him we know better. And his response is always the same. I love you anyway, because I have come for you. Whatever you're posturing up before the Lord today, whatever kind of walls you've thrown up, whatever way Jesus is speaking to different issues in your life, whatever way you've told him you know better, drop those walls. This is the God of the universe whose rock fills your very lungs, whose pneuma has blown into your life to take your fleshly heart and redeem it for his spiritual rebirth because he loves you and he came for you. put it good. God, we thank you for the opportunity to gather here today. Thank you for the truth of your word and your timeless. Lord, I know that those words mean many different things to many people, but they mean a lot to me because I see myself so wrapped up in there. Imperfect and broken and fearful and lack of trust and all those things that you call from me. When I look at you and I say, God, I just don't know, I know better. I know there are people sitting out here today, God, that feel the exact same way. Someone just would not to say it out loud. And the truth is, is that God, we veil our attempts to tell you we love you with our fears and well-crafted prayers and statements that are showing up at the church and all those things that mean literally nothing if we won't give you our heart. And so God, instead of demeaning and ridiculing us and berating us, you just love us anyway. And you just speak truth into the heart of our hearts. To the hardness of our soul, you speak truth and love. And God, I pray along the way that it would just change me. It would change us. I can change they God, the Numa is like the Numa. That your breath is what gives life. And that it blows, and it does what you will. And the way in which you will do it. And it can only be moved. So, Lord, as we close our time in worship, I pray that you would stir our hearts and let us sing to you the God who gives new life, the God who meets us in the middle of our issues, the God who lets us approach at night, whether we're ashamed or not, the God that lets us come before and throw our questions, the God who lets us leave with our arrogance, and the God who speaks truth and love into the middle of it every single time. God, that we of worship we ask this in Jesus' name, our resurrected Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. We'd love for you to use our prayer team, take advantage of them, and let them pray for you as we close our time to worship today. Let us stand. Let's